Well, this is probably the wrong time of year to use this illustration, but, but I want you to imagine you, uh, it's a nice day. Today's, today's pretty nice. It's not cold out. It's not raining. So, so maybe tonight you feel really brave and uh, you decide, let's go to the beach for a bonfire. We want to we wanna go have a bonfire and just enjoy the evening. So uh, what do you need to make a bonfire? You need, you need fuel for the fire. You need something uh, to burn. And I know a lot of times people use pallets, you know, the wood pallets used for shipping because they're cheap, they're easy to carry, you know, they have handles, built-in handles, uh, and you can find them, you just go drive behind a grocery store or whatever and grab it, throw it in your truck. And you can also make a gigantic tower of them, which makes for a cool, a cool bonfire. You can have like your own little burning man out on the beach somewhere. Now I want to make a disclaimer here. If you use pallets to make a bonfire, you are responsible to clean up all the nails and any debris that is left behind. Okay, maybe you need a little rake. I'm asking you to act like adults if you make a bonfire here because I have little kids and when I take them to the beach, I don't want them to step on a rusty, burned up nail. So you have all just been chastised and uh, that's the disclaimer. But assuming that you are a responsible person when it comes to bonfires, um, you, cl- you will clean up all your nails. But, but what really makes a bonfire, like, exciting? <laughs> Gasoline, <laughs> right? I mean, that's when you take a bonfire to the next level, uh, is, is gasoline. So... You, if you're skilled at this, and I know people who will spend hours constructing the perfect bonfire, soaking it in gasoline, and, and the, the moment comes, everybody give it a little bit of distance and, you know, throw that match on there, whoosh, huge explosion, it's so exciting, everybody, after they get over the shock of standing too close and their eyebrows get burned off. Uh, you have a, a fire that's big, and it, it, you can't even get close to it. It's, I don't know if you would call it a bonfire. It's just a, it's just a huge fire that you're sort of close to, uh, so, so it's not that relaxing, but it's a bonfire. And so what happens in that kind of bonfire, it quickly generates a lot of heat, a lot of energy, a lot of light, but, but it's going to burn out relatively quickly. You're not going to, you know, you can't get close enough to, to burn, you know, to cook your marshmallows or hot dogs or whatever. And, and then by the time it all kind of collapses, it's still like a huge area. So you're not really sitting around it. So it burns out relatively quickly. But on the other hand, let's consider, imagine an, an internal combustion engine in your car. I'll give another disclaimer here. I don't really know how an engine works. I had to look this up on the internet, um, watch a YouTube video, but in the simplest way possible, here's how an engine works. It converts fuel, which would be gasoline, right? That's what you put in your car. It converts fuel into motion. How does it do that? An engine through a series of mysterious workings, (laughs) it, it creates small controlled explosions that are happening in a tiny little enclosed space. That's what a piston is. I did not know that. 
That's what it's for. Uh, so, so small controlled explosions happening in a tiny enclosed space. And, and what's happening is energy and actually a lot of energy is being created uh, or it's being released as an expanding gas which then, um, which then makes your car move. Again, it's, it's all magic. So, so a typical car engine... Uh, it's, there's like hundreds of these explosions happening every minute, thousands of them sometimes, uh, all happening inside of your car engine. And what's happening, the engine is harnessing that energy and it uses it to propel your car. Okay, that, again, the lamest explanation you've ever heard for how an engine works, but, but you, I think you get what I'm saying. So, in both cases, the bonfire, the engine, we have exploding fuel, and it creates all this heat and all this energy. But the bonfire, it's uncontrolled. It's unharnessed. It's just wild, and it's, it's going wherever it wants to go. And it uses a lot of fuel that burns out quickly, relatively quickly. But the engine is controlled, it harnesses uh, and uses less fuel to move a car, which you know is going to weigh three to five thousand pounds or whatever. Right? That's a lot of weight. But but those small, controlled, harnessed explosions within the engine can move a car forward. You could drive your car a hundred miles an hour, probably. Not not my old car, my new car. I could do that with. I haven't yet. Maybe I should try that. Anyway. Okay, so, so two different kinds of, of ways of using fuel and energy. The bonfire, the engine. Okay, so last week we started this series on how do we follow Jesus. If, if we are, we say, I, I see Jesus, I see what he's done for me through his life, death, and resurrection, and I, and I want to follow him. I want to become his one of his disciples. And so we, we talked last week about the theme of delight, delight, enjoying Jesus. So we said that, that delight in Jesus is the most important or the, the primary aspect of following Jesus is to enjoy him, that, that we have to love him, right? That's, that has to be there. And we use the story of these two sisters, Mary and Martha, to show us or to see. Here's how Jesus teaches us how to follow him. It's to enjoy him, to love him, to sit at his feet, to be in his presence, to be with him. All right, so another way that, that we could say that is that delight in Jesus is the, it's the fuel of a life that follows Jesus. Our delight is the fuel Okay, so um, in, in the same way that, that fuel can be consumed in different ways, we could say that our, our Christian life can sometimes be like a bonfire, right? We, we love Jesus, we want to follow him, and, and there can be a lot of heat and there can be a lot of light, but what happens is that it can burn out very quickly, that, that we put a lot of energy and, and time into following him, but it's not, it's not really structured, it's not really uh, intentional, it's just like here, I'm just, 
I'm just going to follow Jesus, and, and I don't even know what that means. And so we can, we can burn out in a way, and that's why a lot of us feel like there's irregularity or, or randomness in the way that we feel about following Jesus. Sometimes it feels great, we feel like we're close to him, and other times we feel far and distant from him and cold in our relationships. So, so think about a bonfire, it can be bright and hot, you can't even get close to it, and then the next morning it's just a pile of cold ashes and nails because you didn't clean them up from your palate. Okay, but what if our Christian life could be more like an engine? What if following Jesus could be more like an engine that, that we could, in a sense, uh, build a life that, that is a series of controlled explosions so that the fuel of our delight in Jesus could be harnessed into this forward motion movement where there's lasting, consistent change, growth, and transformation. So that's what happens when we connect delight in Jesus with discipline for Jesus. When we connect our delight in Jesus with discipline for Jesus, we can actually see our, our Christian life as sort of like an engine. Discipline is the theme of what we're talking about today. Discipline in following Jesus. Discipline is God's gift to us. Discipline is God's gift to train us and to teach us how to delight ourselves in Jesus on purpose, intentionally, with, with, um, with a plan. Okay, so through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, discipline directs our delight. Discipline directs our delight to help us grow in our faith in Jesus. So today we're going to learn four things about the discipline of following Jesus. Discipline is a gift. Discipline is negative. Discipline is positive. And discipline is worship. And then we'll finish with how to be disciplined. So we're going to go to the book of Titus. It's in the New Testament. It's on page 998. If you're using one of the Bibles on the table back there, Titus chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 11 through 14 in Titus chapter 2. And I'll give you a warning up front. Today's sermon is going to be a little bit longer because I want to focus on some of the practical things. I'm going to try to go quickly, be efficient, but I I will say that I think it's going to be a little bit longer today. So uh, if you need to leave, it's fine, but you know, there you go. It's going to be a little bit longer. Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is God's word. Let's pray one, once more. Father God, thank you so much for this day that you have made. Help us now to rejoice in this day that you've given to us through, through giving our attention to you. 
through, through submitting ourselves and surrendering our time and our, and our attention to you through your word. What we just read is, is from you. You breathed this out for us to, to take in this morning and by your Holy Spirit would you, would you imprint what you have said in our hearts and our lives in only a way that you could do. And I confess and we confess our weakness to, to preach these things, to talk about them, to understand them, to, and to put them into practice in our lives. And so we beg for you, Holy Spirit, to do your work in us, that we could learn how to follow you, Jesus, as you call us. Thank you for this time that we've got now, and we ask for your blessing on it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, first, we've got to talk about what is discipline. Um, I think it's important to, to define our terms. When I say the word discipline, what am I talking about? And the most simple way to define discipline is that it is training, it is instruction, it is structure. Okay, we could also call it, and sometimes it's translated this way, as punishment, uh, but, but punishment is a really loaded term. We, we, we struggle with the idea of punishment, and, and for good reason. Uh, so when the Bible talks about discipline as punishment, and the, and the book of Hebrews does this a lot, um, when the Bible talks about God disciplining us, in, in, in using the word punishment or discipline in that way, it's always in view of how our perfect, loving Father in heaven is disciplining us in ways that are always good and beneficial to us. So God's discipline is not out of spite, it's not out of anger, it's not out of vengefulness, right? God's discipline is always... Uh, for, for our good in a perfect way. Okay, so, so discipline, in the sense that we're talking about today, though, is really about training, instruction. You know, a, a really helpful picture is what an athlete does to train themselves, right? They discipline themselves in order to attain a greater athletic achievement. So that's the picture that you can think in your mind. That's what discipline is. But then we're also going to use the phrase or the idea of spiritual discipline. So, so when we talk about that, uh, that's the rituals or the habits or the practices that we build in our lives for the purpose of growing as followers of Jesus. There's a, a guy named Don Whitney. He wrote a book uh, on spiritual disciplines, and he says the spiritual disciplines are those practices found in Scripture that promote spiritual growth among believers in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're, they're practices, habits that we find in Scripture that help us grow in our faith in Jesus. Okay, so, so discipline is training or instruction. Spiritual disciplines are the practices that we put into our lives in order to grow as disciples of Jesus. Does that make sense so far? Any questions? That's not a rhetorical question. I'm actually asking that. I just want to make sure that we're good here right at the beginning. Okay. So we've defined discipline. So let's talk about what discipline is. First, discipline is a gift. It is God's 
gift to us. And we have to see this right away as we go through this. So this passage in Titus 2 says, For the grace of God has appeared that has come into our sight, our understanding, bringing salvation for all people, training us. So there's a direct connection between the grace of God and training or discipline. Why is this important for us to understand? Because um, grace is free and discipline is costly. Grace is effortless. It requires nothing on our part. But discipline is hard work. Okay, so, so how can these two things go together? How does grace lead to hard work? How does grace lead to discipline? Here's what we have to see. Our, our salvation, salvation means rescue or deliverance. Uh, we are saved, we are, we are rescued because of God's grace. The, the gospel says we are a mess, we are sinful, we've rebelled against God, and because of that we deserve his his judgment, but when we look to Jesus, we put our faith in who he is and what he's done for us through his life, death, and resurrection. We, by grace, we receive salvation in redemption. We receive a new kind of life. All of that is because of grace. We don't save ourselves through anything that we do. But what, what the Apostle Paul is telling us in this letter is that because that is true, because we have received salvation by grace, now that, that Jesus is, it, we're following him, the same grace, the same grace that saved us is meant to train and to teach us how to live in this new life that we have in Jesus. So, so by God's grace, we come in to this new life. We walk through this door into new life. And by God's grace, we grow up into that new life. We mature. We are a baby and we grow up into maturity in our faith. John Stott, he's this, uh, he's, he's passed away now, but he was this, uh, this old English pastor and theologian. He said that grace saves us and grace trains us. Same grace saves us and trains us or disciplines us. So that's, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying in this passage in Titus. Titus, a training grace is now at work in us because a saving grace has rescued us and brought us into Jesus' family. So this is important because Whenever we start talking about spiritual disciplines or these practices, building regular, consistent uh, rituals or habits into our life through hard work, through striving to, to live and walk in this new kind of life, there can be this objection either coming internally or externally. You're being legalistic. You're, you're, um, you're just trying to be like a, a goody two-shoes or something, and, and that just means that we're trying to, the objection says, well, now you're trying to earn your salvation that you've already been given through, through grace. You're trying to, to earn God's love and favor through your hard work. But we have to see that the same grace 
that saved us is the same grace that is training us. Dallas Willard, he's another person who's written a lot on uh, spiritual disciplines and building these practices into our lives. He says, grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. Do you see the difference there? The grace that we've been given in Jesus, we can, we can work hard, we can strive, we can discipline ourselves not to earn God's love, not to earn his favor because we already have that. So, so we do work hard to grow in our faith because of grace. There's no other reason to do it, okay? But because we've received grace in Jesus, we now get to live in this gift of, of discipline, of building these practices into our lives. So, so discipline's a gift. Next we see that discipline is negative. Okay, what do I mean by that? What I mean is that, that discipline that is driven by grace or fueled by grace, it will require us to stop living in certain ways. Verse 12, the grace of God is training us teaching us, disciplining us, instructing us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Okay, to renounce something is to disown it, to deny it, to distance yourself from it and say, I am no longer a part of whatever that is. So it is a negative term. The grace of God trains us and teaches us to disown our former way of life, who we were, how we lived before we had a life-changing encounter with the radical grace of God. Grace causes us, spurs us to renounce a way of life where we don't have any regard for who God is. If if you haven't received the grace of God and you, you are told you shouldn't live that way because that's, God doesn't want you to live that way, who cares? You don't care. It doesn't matter to you because you have no regard for who Jesus is. This is not important to you. But if you have received the grace of God and you see Jesus as Lord and Savior, what he thinks about you matters and what he's calling you to do matters. So grace says now you disown this life that you lived before, a life where you did whatever you felt like, whatever you feel like. And that's what that's what this passage in Titus means that we renounce worldly passions, we disown these things. That means we're no longer driven or motivated by our earthly passions or desires or cravings, but we are motivated and driven by the grace of God, come to life in the Spirit of God who lives in us. So if Jesus has become our highest delight, so we discipline our lives by striving hard, working hard, fighting against those desires that would distance us from Jesus, okay, that would drive us apart from Jesus. Now, here's where things get uncomfortable. 
What does this look like in your life? It means if you're following Jesus, you will have to change some, some things in your life. Some things in your life will have to change. So if the Holy Spirit comes and lives in you, takes up residence in your life, he's going to start saying, hey, um, oh, you, you can't do that anymore because I, I'm here now. I'm, I'm the Spirit of God who lives in you. The same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. I'm living in you now and I'm, I'm showing you that this is not the kind of life that, that someone lives who follows Jesus. And I'm going to empower you and strengthen you to live a new kind of life now. So the Spirit of God lives in us and we say, oh, well, okay. So now I have to stop doing these things. I have to renounce them. I have to disown them. I have to distance myself from them. That is hard. That is difficult. So, so nothing I'm saying here is just like, hey, it just happens. It's like, uh, you know, you just put these pieces together and then it all happens and everybody smiles. There's no difficulty or struggling or anything like that. No, it is hard. It is hard to renounce our former way of life. We struggle. It's a battle, a lifelong battle. But we cannot give up the battle. Just because it's hard, we can't say, well, I'm just going to sit this one out. The grace of God is training us, disciplining us, saying, hey, you need to renounce these things. It's going to be a sacrifice, but if Jesus is our greatest treasure, if he's our greatest delight, then that sacrifice is worth it. He is worth it. He gave himself for us. He bought us. He redeemed us with his own blood. And so we no longer belong to ourselves. We are not autonomous any longer. And so Jesus has authority in our life. That's, that's what it means to call him Lord. It means you're my ruler now. You're my master. You're the one who says, how I should live and what kind of person I should be. That's what it means to live in submission and surrender to Jesus. Discipline is a gift of grace. Discipline is also a negative that requires us to disown our old way of life. And next we see in this passage that discipline is positive. Okay, so, so what has been taken away is filled in with a new kind of life. The grace of God calls us to stop doing certain things, but the grace of God is also training us to live in a new kind of life. Again, verse 12 says, the grace of God is training us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That means today. Today, tomorrow, the next day, in, in your life, you are called to live, and the grace of God is training you to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. So we don't just give up our old life and wait around for Jesus to come back. We live a new kind of life. He says it's a self-controlled life. It's an upright, moral life. It's a godly life. Another translation calls this a God-filled God-honoring life. And that means that we're going to start doing things that we were not doing before. Okay, 
So because of the grace of God has come to me in Jesus, that I'm following Jesus now and the same grace is training me, I'm going to stop doing that. I'm going to use an example here. I'm going to stop having sex with somebody who, is, who I'm not married to, so I'm going to stop doing that. I'm going to renounce that and I'm going to start doing something else. So I'm going to start building relationships and friendships that honor God and honor those and honor other people. I'm going to, to follow what Jesus has said to love God and to love other people with my life. That's a real life example of what this can look like. I stop being selfish and I start being generous. I stop living in excess and I start living in moderation. I stop being proud and I start being humble. That's the new kind of life. And and almost any list in the New Testament, if you walk through the New Testament, here's the old life and this is what it looked like. Stop doing that and here's the new life. And you can see it over and over again. And, and we see these lists, and oh, there's so many rules in the New Testament. But it's not about a list of rules. It's saying, you have this new identity in Jesus. Here's how to live in it. This is what it looks like. So when we start doing these new things, we're, we're reflecting through our actions, through our lives. An inner transformation has occurred in us and is going to continue to grow in us. That's fueled by the grace of God. So we stop doing old things, we start doing new things. And the key here is to note <laughs> that we start doing them, okay? No person I know that has come to faith in Jesus the next day is living a mature, fully fully formed Christian life. It it requires time. It requires mistakes and failures to grow in Jesus. And the grace is there for us to grow. God is not like, you got one chance, and if you screw up one time, you're, you're off the board. No, no, that's, that's why we confess our sins, because we say, my life right now is not, the, it's not what it should be. It's not a, a grace-fueled life. I'm, I'm slipping back into these old things. And, and the Spirit says, no, you're called into this new life. So confess those things, receive forgiveness, and walk in newness of life again. We don't start perfect, but we start, okay? Discipline's a gift. Discipline is negative. Discipline is positive. And discipline is worship. That's what we see at the end of this passage. And, and I want to go back to an example I used last week of this, this uh, monk named Brother Lawrence. He lived in the 1600s. We, we read a quote of his where he talked about his enjoyment of God, right? Where he said that he, he so savored and delighted in God that he was almost embarrassed to talk about it. Uh, and it was, it's a really intimate idea of our delight in Jesus, but, but in his book, The Practice of the Presence of God, uh, when, when another author was reflecting on it, he said, what we see in Brother Lawrence is that right habits or right disciplines increase our capacity to love Jesus. Right habits increase our capacity to love. So, so Brother Lawrence, this monk, he didn't grow in the sense of his enjoyment of Jesus by accident. 
He made it a practice. He made it a habit. He formed his life in such a way, or we could say he built an engine to harness the fuel of his delight in God into something that propelled him into this life of of worship, a life of, of living in God's presence continually. And he sacrificed so much in order to do that. But what did he find? He found enjoyment. He was, he was full to the brim of his enjoyment of Jesus. So, so when you ask the question and you think, why should I strive to live a self-controlled, disciplined life? Because you have been loved by God and through Jesus you've been called into a new kind of life. And you get to enjoy him. It's your privilege. And you can actually grow in your capacity for enjoying God. Okay, I want to I just use a quick example. This is not in my notes, but last night I was at a fundraiser with my kids for their school, and we had tablecloths, or it was just paper, so everybody's drawing on the tables with crayons. And I drew uh, this little cartoon character that I've been drawing since I was like 11. Same, same guy, same hair, same eyeballs, same mouth. And I was like, I've been, I have never progressed beyond drawing the same, because I didn't pursue art. It was just doodles, you know, fun stuff for me to draw on my schoolwork and everything. But I never progressed beyond drawing this same character because I didn't put any time in. I didn't, I didn't discipline myself. I didn't, I didn't try to take a class or, or read a book or watch Bob Ross or something on how to, to learn how to make more uh, mature art, if that's, if that's the way you could define art. I didn't discipline myself, and so I never moved beyond a certain, a certain point. Spiritual disciplines are there for us to, to grow in our capacity of our enjoyment of God. And, and they, they are meant to be an engine to fuel and to propel us into worship. The disciplines themselves, they're not the fuel. They're just the mechanism for us to enjoy Jesus more. So the disciplines, they give us structure and they give us shape so that we can harness and grow in that love and enjoyment of Jesus. Another quote from Dallas Willard, he says, discipline, strictly speaking, is activity carried on to prepare us indirectly for some activity other than itself. And that's like, oh, Dallas Willard, you taught philosophy. That's such a confusing sentence. And then he uses an example. We don't practice the piano to practice the piano well, but to play it well. You see the difference there, right? He says, we don't practice so that we practice well. We practice in order to play beautiful music. And that's the picture that the Apostle Paul is giving us at the end of this passage in Titus. He says, why do we live this new kind of life? Why do we live in a disciplined way where the grace of God is training us and disciplining us? Because we are eagerly, verse 13, waiting For our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous 
for good works. You sense the anticipation there, right? He says we live this kind of life because we're eagerly longing for Jesus to come back and we want to be ready for his return. We're so looking forward to him coming back that, that when he comes back, we're ready to be with him for all of eternity. And so we're practicing and we're practicing and we're playing our scales and, and we're, we're saying every day at 3.30, I'm going to go play the piano. We're fighting laziness. We're fighting apathy. We're fighting against indifference because we believe one day Jesus is going to come again. And when he comes we get to join in this beautiful, eternal song of worship. And it's, it's, it's something that we can savor and look forward to and that can motivate us into, into disciplining ourselves and training ourselves because discipline, the end of discipline or the goal is worship. It's worship. Okay, let's finish by trying to get practical. This is always the hardest part of a sermon, and it's always the hardest part of our Christian life. How do we put this stuff to work? How do we grow in discipline? How do we live disciplined lives? In which way should we discipline ourselves? And, and here's the thing. The problem is that we don't have a lack of information. We have tons of books. I've quoted from several books already. You can read Dallas Willard. You can read Richard Foster. You can read Don Whitney. There's, there's so many different books that I could recommend to you about how to live a disciplined life. The problem is not a lack of information. The problem is implementation. How do we actually do this? Like, What would it look like in my life to do this? You guys ever go to the gym and you walk in and you're like, these machines, I don't know what they're for. I've never lifted weights. Shocking, I know. Um, <laughs> but I've never lifted weights because I don't know how to use the machines. I mean, that's one of the reasons. The other reason is that you have to lift heavy things, not into it. Um, but, but there's an intimidation, right? You go in there and you're like, what if I am like pulling on the thing and it's like, that's just the way to adjust the seat or something. You're not actually working out. You're just making yourself look like a fool because you don't know how to use the machine. And if you're like me, you don't want to go talk to a trainer because then they're going to be like, you should do this. You're like, I don't want to do that. Um, so, so, right, you go into a gym, and, and one of the biggest barriers is that we don't know where to start. We don't know how to use the machines. When we, when we think about following Jesus in a disciplined way, it often feels the same way. I don't even know where to start. I don't know what, how, where am I supposed to start reading in the Bible and, and how do I pray? What does that even look like? What, is, what does prayer look like? So this is, there's so many things that we could talk about when it, when it comes to practically building these disciplines into our lives. But here's a quote that I think sums up how we do this. Richard Foster, he has a book called Celebration of Discipline. It's been used by Christians for 40 plus years. He says, first, 
In order to do this, we need a sturdy or strong vision of a with God life in the kingdom of God. Okay, so he says we need to have a vision of what it looks like to, to dwell with God in the ways that he's called us to. Then we need a clear intention to pursue such a vision. We have to, we have to want to do it, okay? And then we need a full understanding of the means to fulfill such a vision. So we need a vision, we need intention, and we need means. Uh, so here's what it looks like. I want that. Here's how I'm going to get there. So first he says we have to have a vision of the disciplined life. And, and some of us are in this place. What are these things? What is this kind of this disciplined life looks like. Okay, there's a list here in in Richard Foster's book, Celebration of Discipline. He says, here's 12 disciplines, spiritual disciplines. Four are inward, four are outward, and four are corporate or things that we do together uh, as a community. Okay, so he says, inwardly, there's the, the discipline of meditation, prayer, fasting, study that includes reading, reading the Bible, Outward disciplines are simplicity, solitude, submission, and service. Easy to remember, they all start with S. The corporate disciplines are confession, worship, guidance, and celebration. All right, so we'll leave that up there in a little bit if you want to take notes on that. Now, that is a big list, and I can't even break down what each of those words means. Some of those words are hard to define, or we don't really know what it would look like. Well, what is it like for me to engage in, in solitude? Oh, I don't even know where to start with that. Um, but, but in general, would you say, you know, a Christian should be living out that kind of life? Those should be uh, distinctions or, or marks of a Christian's life. Would, would you say you want to do those kinds of things? You, you want to see these things in your life? Probably in some way? Okay, I'm going to, I'm going to say you're, you're nodding yes. So if you received the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God lives in you, the grace of God is at work in you, these should become something you desire, something that you long for. So you could say, here's what it looks like. I want that. There's an intention there. So, so you have a vision. You have an intention to live a disciplined life. Finally, this is the hard part. You have to have a plan. How am I going to live a disciplined life? Now, this is it right here, you guys. You've been sitting here for 40, not, not quite 40 minutes, and you're going, how am I going to do this? Like, all this stuff, you just put that big list up there. What is simplicity? I mean, if that's a spiritual discipline. I got to do that now. I didn't even know that was on the list. Uh, if you go away from here today with the knowledge that you should be disciplined in your Christian life, but you have no plan for how to do it, you will not become disciplined. You will keep drawing the same cartoon guy for the rest of your life. So, all you will have is this vague sense of guilt, like, I should be growing. I should be more disciplined in these areas, but you have no plan for how to do that. You must have a plan. You must. As the saying goes... If you fail to plan, you what? You plan to fail. If you fail to plan, you plan to fail. So you must have a plan. One more quote from Dallas Willard. He says, The general human failing is to want what is right and important, but at the same time, 
not to commit to the kind of life that will produce the action we know to be right and the condition we want to enjoy. This is the feature of human character that explains why the road to hell is paved with good intentions. We intend what is right, but we avoid the life that would make it reality. You must have a plan. You must have a specific plan. It has to be concrete. Where? When? For how long? What is it? So, so think about the discipline of studying God's word, reading God's word. If you're a follower of Jesus, you must read the Bible. Jesus read the Bible. If Jesus does something, you should do it too. Okay, general, general rule there. If, if, God's, if the Bible is God's revelation of who he is, what he's done for us, and the kind of life he wants us to live, then, then you should be interested in that. So you should, you should want to read it. You know you should read it, but you don't read it. Okay, you do not read the Bible. So, so let's say, okay, uh, you, you want to read the Bible through in a year. You, wanna, you say, I want to start in January 1st. I'm going to start in Genesis. I'm going to read through the Bible in a year. And that is a good goal. That's a good intention, but if you do not have a plan, you will not do it. You do not read through the Bible in a year on accident, in your spare time, when you feel like it. It will not happen, I guarantee you. But what if you said every day, at this time, in this chair, using this Bible, not your phone, because you won't read the Bible on your phone. It's a little secret, you guys. Uh, Using a reading schedule like the Bible Project. Go on there. It's on your phone, but just, just don't actually read the Bible on your phone. Just get the schedule from your phone. If you do those things, you will read the Bible. You will read the Bible. Now, you're going to have off days. You're going to be traveling. You're not going to feel well. You sleep through your alarm. Your chair that you read the Bible in breaks. I don't know what happens. You're going to have difficulties. You're going to have barriers and things that happen, but you will go back to it because you made a plan. You have a plan for doing this. But if you don't have a plan, you're just functionally avoiding the kind of life that will turn your intention of reading and meditating into an actual practice or reality in your life. And you can take that idea, translate it to, to all areas, all these, that thing that was on that list there. Do you want to give? I remember in my, in my early, uh, late teens, early 20s, every year I would get a statement back from the church and I would be like, I barely gave anything this year because I had no plan for how I was, I wanted to give, but I had no plan for how to do it. So you have to say, how much am I going to give? When am I going to do that? Am I going to do it with a check or am I going to do it with cash? Or am I going to pay on, online? Am I going to do it every week? Am I going to do it every month? Am I going to do it once a year? How are you going to do it? That's, that's one example. Or say you want to fast. I want to intentionally abstain from eating food uh, for a period of time. It could be one day a week. What day of the week are you going to do that? And what's that day going to look like? You have to envision it in your mind. Are you going to 
avoid going out with people in the evening of the day that you're fasting because, because you'll be tempted to eat because they're all sitting around eating and you're just sitting there in the corner with your, your soda water and lime and you're like, I can't eat anything today. Um, I'm going to just be mopey over here. What's, what's that day going to look like at the beginning and in the middle and at the end of your day of fasting? You have to have a plan. One of the most beautiful gifts that we have from God to help us grow in these ways in our faith for Jesus, in our love for Jesus, is each other. The people who are here today with you, who are part of your church community. So it helps to know that we're not struggling alone, I think. That, that I'm not the only person who's having a hard time with these things. And, and I feel I can be encouraged by knowing, yes, these brothers and sisters are with me in this struggle. And so, so as we run alongside each other, we can encourage each other. We can say, press on, grow, keep on doing these things. So, so when, when you are trying to grow in these ways, you get tired, you get confused, you have questions. I don't even know what this would look like in my life, but, but you're not an only child, Okay, you, you have brothers and sisters and you can say, this is what's, this is what's going on with me. And so, so one of the disciplines that we often ignore is the gift of, is the discipline of coming together, of being together in community. And community itself is a kind of discipline. If you have no plan for when am I going to come together in intentional ways with other Christian brothers and sisters to worship Jesus together, you will not grow in community. Or it will come and, and, you know, ebbs, it'll ebb and flow. It won't be consistent. So, So if your life is structured in a way that you have no time or very little time for community, it's, it's not going to grow just like any other thing. So, so practically think, how can I get connected with a gospel community? If you don't know what that is, come talk to me. Come on a Sunday night when we're doing a study. Uh, commit to being together here on Sunday morning. You're here today, so that's awesome. Reach out to each other through the week. Send each other a text message and say, how are you doing? What's going on in your life? Pray for each other. Pray for each other. Then you're getting two birds with one stone. You're growing in the discipline of prayer and you're growing in the discipline of community. But the the main point is you have to have a plan for what this will look like, how you will grow. Okay, that's all the practical stuff. Grace is the fuel for, for worship. Grace is the fuel for discipline. We have to go back again and again. And, and Paul, ends, he starts and ends this passage. It's all about grace. It's all about who Jesus is, what he's done for us. Okay, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to have a time of response. We don't have music, so we're going to do something a little different for response. So let's pray, and I'll explain what we're going to do. Father, we've got a lot of information today, and, and I hope... That, that you show, you are the one who shines through, through this, that we would see ultimately that the only reason we're even talking about this, the only reason it has any bearing on our life is because of your incredible grace that has come to life in Jesus for us. Otherwise, all this stuff is, is nothing. It's worthless without you, Jesus. 
And so at the beginning and the middle and the end of our lives and, and all the ways that we grow, Jesus, would you be our delight? Would you be our joy? And would all these things that we're talking about just be ways that we can enjoy you more? Just be ways that we could grow in our love and our delight in who you are. I pray that as we continue to respond together, that you would really help us understand how to do this in in our lives each day, each moment, so that we could enjoy you more individually and together as a community. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.